Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I want to say welcome to all of our visitors this morning. Um, if if I, I get an opportunity after service today, I'd love to meet you and, and uh, introduce myself. I'm Pastor Brandon Briscoe. I'm pastor of the College and Young Adult Ministry. And we have been walking through and expositing, as we say. It's a fancy word for walking through. Uh, verse by verse, uh, 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth that had some problems. They had some problems. They'd, they'd come to a, a moment in their short eight, nine-year history uh, where they had really not grown. They were struggling to grow in their faith. They were struggling to grow in their knowledge of God's Word. They were struggling to minister the way that they should. And uh, we've been learning a lot. We've been learning a lot from this, uh, this book. Now, up to this point, we've been talking uh, a lot about leadership, a lot about leadership. And we've been talking about what it costs to be a leader, what actually needs to be sacrificed in your own life to become a leader in God's church, in God's mission, in God's ministry. What is that going to require of you, believer, person who says, yes, I want to follow Jesus Christ with everything that I have. What is it going to cost you to, to uh, intentionally put yourself in a position where you're influencing other people for Jesus Christ? Now, we also talked about it in terms of what it's going to cost you to be submitted to the leaders in your life, right? The leaders that invest in you, that pour downward into you. What does it cost for you to yield and to submit and to be a part and to trust, despite the fact that we're all working with flawed individuals? All of us have weaknesses. None of us are perfect. Uh, but, but yet, God built this thing out in a way that the local church has a structure and it has uh, has leadership that we're supposed to submit to. And if we're going to accomplish God's mission in this world, it's going to require something of us. Now listen, uh, this next chapter, uh, we're going to discover that leadership is not all it's cut out to be, right? Uh, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there's situations that leaders just don't know how to deal with. It gets complicated. It gets confusing. It's get, it gets difficult. I mean, we're talking about family here. We're talking about relationships. It's messy, isn't it? And sometimes leadership has to get their hands a little bit messy. And so we as leaders are called to humble ourselves and to lower ourselves so that we can empathize with the people that we minister to. When their lives do get difficult and they do get messy and sin enters in and there's trials and there's, there's temptations, it's the leadership's responsibility to lower their, themselves and, and place themselves into other people's lives that they might love them and care for them and, and, and draw them back into knowledge of God's word and what it means to move forward in faith. 2 Timothy 2.24 puts it this way. And the servant of the Lord, right? That word servant and minister, those words are the same. We've talked about that. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Right? Sometimes we oppose, them, oppose ourselves and we need leaders to come into our life and to help us get beyond that. 
If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, when people find themselves in sin, what they need is to repent. What they need to do is turn away, acknowledge the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. When this call to repentance is heeded in the life of a believer, cool, everything's gravy, everything's good, right? All of us mess up. And all of us need to find repentance. And, and when we find that repentance, man, restoration is there. And we can move forward in faith. Cool. But sometimes, sometimes that accountability comes. Sometimes that sin in your life, man, you don't want to deal with it. And when you, when you hold on to your sin unjustly and you're, you, you hunker down and you, and you refuse to repent, that really affects everybody. That affects everyone involved in this family. And sometimes those things have to be dealt with in a way that's very, very hard for everyone involved. Today we're going to be talking about what leaders do when the call to repentance is not heeded, when it's ignored, when it's rejected. How should leaders respond when church members, our family, refuse to do what's right? Now up to this point, Paul has been talking to a church that was struggling with division. And the topic has been division. Now, now, he's going to turn his attention to this idea of church discipline. What does it look like when someone is on church discipline? Maybe you haven't even heard that phrase before. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Gosh, nobody likes discipline, right? When my kids are in trouble, they know the word discipline. They know what that means. It's, it's time for discipline. They know what that means. It ain't friendly. It ain't good. Right? So no one wants to talk about this, but look, that's the thing about expository preaching. You don't get to skip over the hard stuff. So here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we've got a question to ask ourselves, and it's this. How do we deal with unrepentant sin? How do we deal with it? What do we do about it when there's unrepentant sin in our family? What do we do about that? Well, there's a calling, and there's a scriptural admonition that we're supposed to follow, and we're going to learn about that today, even as difficult as it might be. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. It's been so instructive to us up to this point. We have, uh, Lord, just covered so much ground, and I know there's so much more ahead of us, and I'm I'm excited about that. But here we are in this very tough passage, Um, and as a pastor, I can't say I'm excited excited at preaching it, but Lord, I am excited about your, your, your church learning about this. I know that this is something that we have to understand. And we have to reckon it. We have to acknowledge it for what it is. And so, Lord, please teach us today. Teach us hard things. Teach us difficult things that we might, Lord, ultimately learn how to deal with sin ourselves so that the church doesn't have to get involved, the leadership doesn't have to get involved, that the pet sins, the things that we're holding on to, the things that are in secret, uh, we would deal with them before they, before they begin to characterize us and begin to to really be the underlying identifier in our life is this sin struggle that we hold on to, we don't know what to do with. Lord, help us to deal with that. And Lord, teach us how to get, get leaders involved early on so that we can confess those things and repent of them and deal with sin the way that you, the way you intended it to be dealt with. So teach us how to do that today. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, let's begin by reading. 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. We're going to get through the whole chapter today. Okay, so bear with me. Pay close attention. Here we go. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you 
and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. The one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this, uh, done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, there's a lot going on there, and some of it might sound complicated. We're going we're gonna to break it down so we can understand what's happening here. But let's start with verse 1. There's some sin in Corinth. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Paul had several confirmations of this. Reports had come to him, and he had confirmed. Now, after all, this is the Apostle Paul, right? He has insight that even you and I can't have. You know, pastors in your life, they have the gift of discernment, and they can oftentimes see that there's something going on that shouldn't be going on. Maybe they can't put their finger on it, but they can see that something is off, and they know that they need to deal with it. But man, so much more, the Apostle Paul, has, who has insight of the, from the Holy Spirit in a unique way, how much more would he have that insight? And so between the Spirit and between, between that and the reports that were coming to him, he has confirmation that fornication is happening in Corinth. And this word fornication, fornicate, all right, oftentimes we hear people say it's the Bible's F word, okay, all right, it is the College and Young Adult Ministry, so I feel comfortable using that, using that statement. You know what I'm talking about. But the word fornication, uh, the Greek word, the derivative, is porneia, porneia, meaning any sexual act outside of the marriage relationship. That constitutes as fornication. This person in the church was being allowed to remain in the church and function as though nothing was wrong. Just going along, doing what they do. But we know that there's something wrong with that. We know that that's not okay. In God's eyes, it was very wrong. And Paul, Paul was heated about it. He wasn't pleased. So before we can address our question of, for today's sermon, let's, let's get one thing straight. There's a thing that we need to understand, that we need to figure out before we get into the depths of this passage, and that's this, people sin. People sin. People sin all the time. You and I sin all the time. Saved people sin. When you got saved, listen, when you got saved, you were dead spiritually. And you were made alive through Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit quickened you and you became a new creature. 
All things became, uh, all things became dead. They, became pa- they passed away. And all things were become new. You understand? Something had changed. The records of your sin had been washed away. Revelation 1.5 says that Christ loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That very, very costly price that Jesus Christ gave for our sins, it washed away every blemish in your life. And so if you're a saved person right now, you stand clean before God the Father. When he sees you, he sees you as he sees his son Jesus Christ, perfect in every way. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. They're they're so far apart that they can never meet, right? That's the the distance. It's so great. It's so fast that they can never meet. Again, you've you've been forgiven completely from your sin if you know Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that you will never sin again. You still have a flesh. God left you with your flesh. So so your spirit was quickened by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Your soul was made set free from bondage. But you still have a flesh, and that flesh is yet to be redeemed. It will be redeemed at the day of his return. It will be made right. Your flesh will also be quickened. You will become like him in the day of our redemption. But in the meantime, in this life, you very sadly... I have to break it to you, will not be perfect. You can become mature, but you will never be made perfect. You will sin. Some of you have sinned this morning. On the way, on the way to church, you were sinning. We're messed up. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. So you cannot do the things that you would. So you've got your spirit, the, the uppercase spirit, that represents good, that represents morality, that represents rightness, that represents righteousness in you. And then you have your flesh, and the two things are warring at each other all the time, constantly butting heads. It's tough. It's tough. And the things that you want to do with your life for Christ, you find yourself failing, and you get in your own way over and over and over again, right? Romans seven eighteen says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. It's hard. It's hard out there for a Christian. It's difficult. We find ourselves failing time and time again. Now, because of that, we have to have a very clear view of our sin. We have to understand it for exactly what it is. There's some principles that we need to abide by in our life that help us to overcome sin time and time again. So that they don't take hold of us. So those things that we're tempted by don't take hold of us. They don't affect us. That so we can move beyond the struggles that we have. So knowing that we occasionally make mistakes, that we will occasionally let that old man come out, there's a perspective we should hold to as Christians and a position that we should take as it concerns this, or it concerns sin. And so now we have a key point. I have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to move fast. I'm going Alan Shelby at you. Hold on to your seats. Key point. Mature believers deal with personal sins through biblical means, through a biblical understanding, through a biblical framework. We establish a framework and understand. In discipleship, you talk about sin, don't you? Right? There's, a, there's a whole lesson dedicated to what you should do with your sin. Okay? 
There's a framework. There's an understanding. There's a perspective that you have to have in order to deal with sin the right way. And here's a few of those principles that we need to hold on to. First, we should hate sin. We should hate it. We shouldn't love it. It shouldn't be our pet. We shouldn't indulge it. When it happens in our life, we have to hate it. We have to recognize that that despite the fact that God has saved us from our sin, that the sins that we commit from day to day are wicked. And and those actions and those thoughts and those behaviors are incongruent with who God has made us to be. And because of that, we have to hate sin. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. These behaviors are unbecoming of a Christian. And I recognize that. And so I hate them. I hate when I do them. The next thing we should understand is that we should confess and repent of our sin. Okay, a lot of us, what we do with our sin is we hide it away. We don't want people to know. The things that we do in the privacy of our own home or in our car or, the, or when we're with the people that are lo- in our lives that are lost, how we behave, how we act, we don't want other people to know about that. We tuck it away, we hide it, we, we brush it under the rug, and we actually ignore it because we don't want it to come in conflict with the Spirit. So if we can ignore our sin, then that sin will, will never come in conflict with the Spirit. Now, the problem with that is that as you do that, you are littering, literally severing your conscience. You are numbing your own conscience. And so the prescription that God has given us is that we ought to confess our sin and let him, let him heal us and forgive us to the, from the day-to-day sins that we commit. Okay, we know that we're forgiven, right? We're forgiven, there is no blemish, but yet at the same time when we sin from day-to-day, the right thing to do is to confess those things to him so that he can just... Right? More of this, right? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for that. Thank God that there's a way of continuing to keep that relationship fresh and right before the Lord. Right? If I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's only right that when I wrong him, that I confess it to him. It's only right, you know, I know that Eva loves me unconditionally, but if I do something to hurt her, I do things that, 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 that get in the way of a, of a good and perfect relationship, it's only right that I would come to her and confess those things and make them right so that she can forgive me and we can move forward as though it never happened, right? And we have to have that perspective too. Three, we should not entertain sin. The sins that you have in your life, you have to take action in order to prevent those temptations to continually enter into your life. You have to take action. There are things that you need to do in order to prevent yourself from falling into sin. Romans 13, 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The idea of making not provision means that you need to do things in your life that corner out and push out sin. Okay, don't make provision for it. Don't make room for it. Don't make opportunity for sin. Okay, so listen to me really practically. Practically speaking, when sin enters into our life, oftentimes it's because we've invited it, right? But if you don't extend an invitation to sin, then sin will not come knocking on your door. 
right? So we, t- we need to not make provision for sin. In other words, you need to make sure that your computer is set up and your phone is set up in a way. So if you're tempted to look at something that you shouldn't look at, that someone will be notified and you will be protected against doing things that you shouldn't do. You should have accountability. You should have people that are invested in you and they know about your life so that, so that they too can hold you to a higher standard. When those people that come around, they know that, that you know that they tempt you to do things that you ought not do, those are relationships that you should keep at a distance. Why? You shouldn't make provision for the flesh because you hate sin. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians sorry, 5.22 Abstain from all appearance of evil. That extends to even the appearance of sin. Dang. I mean, I know you like to go to the club. Now, I don't booty dance, and I don't drink, but I like the club, or whatever it is. You know, this doesn't make sense, right? The appearance of evil, the appearance of evil. Okay, well, I went over to my boyfriend's house, and I slept on the couch, and he was in his bedroom. We didn't, we didn't sleep together. Tell that to the neighbors who see your car parked there all night. You see how this works? The appearance of evil itself is wickedness. You ought to be blameless. When people look at your life, they shouldn't even be able to make accusation. Does that make sense? This is the standard that God's holding us to, and we have to make, uh, make uh, uh, no provision to the fl- for the flesh at this level, right? At this level, be blameless. If this is our perspective and practice as it concerns sin, then even when we mess up, there's only ever just acceptance and support and restoration all around us. When we fail, when we make a mistake, I mean, if we have this mindset, when we repent, man, the family of God rejoices with you. They've got your back. We've got your back. You will mess up. I will mess up. When I mess up, I hope to God that my brothers and sisters in Christ will come alongside of me and show me love and support me and restore me to fellowship. God wants to make things right. He wants us to stay harmonized. He wants us to stay unified. But we've got to deal with sin the right way. Does that make sense? Okay, so all of us fail. All of us fail. All of us will make mistakes. We need to repent. We need to deal with it. And when we do, things will be made right. That's the way it's supposed to work in the family of God. But from time to time, things do get messy. And someone in the church who doesn't have this perspective chooses to live in their sin and continue to indulge it. And Corinth is our case in point. Okay? They're our test case for this. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, listen, that one should have his father's wife. Terrible. Okay, so yes, this guy is having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. D. I mean, I'm not hearing enough collective groaning. I mean, I'm glad there's not a whole lot of detail here, okay? We don't ever know the guy's name. We don't ever know the, what, you know, the details of it. Paul leaves all that out. 
Now, principally, I want you to understand that that's, that's a really good thing for us to learn, that when people sin, we ought to not banter their name around. Okay, when people mess up, we, should, we shouldn't expose them that way. You know why? Because God's heart is to restore them. You're hearing the theme here? And when he restores them, he does it in a way that he doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge that sin. He doesn't see it. It's forgiven. But yet, if we drag someone's name through the mud, then it's very hard for them to recover themselves in the body of Christ. They shouldn't have to carry that reputation. So, so Paul's preserving this person. Now, look, it is Jack, though. Like, this guy's Jack. I mean, he deserves to be put on blast. All right? He deserves it. Because it's disgusting. Now, we've talked about the sexual promiscuity in Corinth before, right? We've talked about the fact that in Corinthian culture, in Greek culture of this time, that the false gods of the heathen would often be worshipped through sexual acts. And so even in Corinth, there was a temple that was devoted to uh, orgies, okay? And, and people would go there. They would travel there from all around, okay? It was like, like Las Vegas on steroids, right? And they would go there, and they would, they would perform sexual acts. They would justify it as worship before some false god. But they would go there for prostitution. There were male and female prostitutes everywhere, Okay, this was, a, this was a city of sexual indulgence. And that kind of, you know, sexual behavior, like sexual promiscuity, that would have been commonplace. But even for Corinth, Paul says, what does he say? As is not so much as named among the Gentiles. That even in Roman and Greek culture, this is jacked. This kind of behavior, even among the heathen, is, is horrendous. An incestual relationship broke all social norms and would have been, been shocking even to the Romans and the Greeks. So Paul says that even the wicked and perverse Corinthians would have turned, this would have turned their stomachs and raised their eyebrows. And yet it was happening openly within the body of Christ. That people knew about it. That they, that, that they knew what was going on and they just ignored it. Now here's the next key point, and I think it's important for us to, to point this out. That the world sees the church's hypocrisy and they scoff at it. So when we don't deal with sin the right way, okay, and we, we're holding ourselves to this standard, right? The biblical standard. We say that this is what we believe. And our lives consistently fall short of this standard so much so that it begins to characterize us. Listen to me. The world takes note and they see it. I mean, you know. You know how, how Americans in our secular society, in our post-Christian world, how they view church, right? And they see it through the lens of what they see on TV, okay? They view it through the lens of what they see on Instagram. And it's disgusting. It's materialistic. Right? It's, it's overly sexualized. It's completely distracted. It's selfish in every way. That's what they see. And they see it, they see it as hypocrisy and they scoff at it. Man, God forbid that be true of this body, this church. But that's what happens when sin is tolerated. So let's look at this. Who's at fault here? Who's at fault? What's going on? As far as, far as Paul is concerned... There are two groups at fault here. Two groups. The first one is the committer, the man. 
the man who's actually doing this. Fornication had never been acceptable. Never. Never among the Jews and never among the Christians. It was a deplorable sin. Fornication is wicked. Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saints. Don't even once let it be named among you. Don't let this thing pop up ever in your midst. It's wicked. It's not right that people just be sleeping around doing what they want sexually. It's not okay. It should never be named once among you. But there's also another agent of sin in this matter. It's not just this guy who's clearly messed up. But it's also those that permit the sin. There's the committer and there's the permitter. And that's the church. The Corinthians had, already, uh, had allowed this to go on unaddressed in their midst for quite a while. And rather than seeing it as, as horrific as it is, they winked at it. Instead of grieving over it, they ignored it. They dismissed it and behaved as though it was no big deal. Listen to what Paul says, verse 2. And ye are puffed up. Okay, and we've already talked about this. That means you're arrogant. You're arrogant. Why? Because you failed to acknowledge sin for what it is. You can't even see it. You're so proud and you're so arrogant that you can't even see sin. You think so highly of yourselves. You think that you're so, you've got it all figured out. You can't even see sin anymore. Then he says, and have not rather mourned. In other words, you are indifferent. You're indifferent. Why? Because you failed to be convicted by sin. Not only should you see the sin, but it should also convict you. It should cause you to mourn. That he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. You're oblivious. You're oblivious. Why? Because you failed to deal with this the way that God would have you to deal with it. Namely, removing this man from the church. So here's our next key point. Some issues in the church require decisive action. I hate it, you hate it. But there are some instances in the church where de de decisive action is required in order, in order to make things right before God. Now this is what we have to come to grips with. That there are sometimes issues, even in church family, that have to be dealt with by pastors and leaders. And this sometimes includes dismissing someone from the local assembly. You have to leave. You have to leave this place. You have to leave the family. We love you. You'll always be family. We love you. But you have to go. So what does that even look like? Right, so this is, I, I'm, granted, I know that what I'm talking about right now is new to some of you. You've never heard of this concept. You're not familiar with this idea of church discipline. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it right here. But what does this even look like? When is this required? And how are those decisions even made? Well, we're going to figure that out as we walk through the passage. Verse 3. <clears throat> For verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. So Paul's already come to a conclusion on this matter. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. No one in the church was even denying it. 
This was common knowledge that this was going on. And he had already judged over the matter. Paul knew what needed to happen. He knew what needed to happen. So let's talk about this, this idea of, of making, someone, making someone leave the church because of sin. Okay, this is the way it works at Midtown Baptist Temple. I'm going to let you behind the curtain for a moment, okay? Now, when there are sins, and we're going to talk about what kind of sins qualify. We'll get there in a minute, okay? So hang with me. I just want to make sure that you understand this fully. When there are sins in the church that are, man, persistent, when in someone's life they're, they're fornicating or, or maybe that there's, there's consistent abuse or, or behavior that's, that, that's beginning to characterize their life, the way that it, it ought to work is that we ought to sit down and talk about it because we want to give that person every opportunity to repent. And so accountability is had. Maybe it happens first at the Bible study level. Maybe it happens with your discipler. Then maybe it comes to a pastor and we sit down and we have a conversation. And we want you to address it biblically the way that we've already talked about. Okay, so that's where it begins because we want to see people restored. And we lovingly warn them. We warn them that the path that they're on is it's, it's going to end up in failure. It's going to end up in disaster. God can't bless it. There's no way. And we have to address it that way. Now, sometimes this is received. Actually, most of the time this is received. Praise the Lord, right? But, but, but when it's received, that person is brought, brought, brought right back into restoration. Okay, now there might be things that we need to work on and habits that we need to address and things that we need to deal with. And so we're going to love them and nurture them and teach them and, and help them to get on the path, right? But, but the, the goal is restoration to make that person right. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Now, most of the time, if someone decides that they want to remain in their sin, sadly, they'll just leave. But it's really difficult to sin in an egregious way in the midst of a family of people who hate sin. Like, it's hard, it's hard to sustain that for a long period of time without lots of guilt, and you know. So it's easier a lot of times for people to leave. And, and you know what? We lose people this way. They want to have a relationship that's not right. It's unbecoming of a believer. They want to act a way that is unbecoming of a believer. And so what they do is they just put themselves on church discipline. They just leave. And they go and indulge that sin. And the prayer is always that God would show them the utter sinfulness of their sin and then he would draw them back into fellowship, that they would come back to us. And we've seen that happen time and time again. Praise the Lord. But sometimes a person wants to sin right in our midst. And it must be dealt with. Why? So that the church isn't culpable in defrauding the name of Christ. So that the church can't be blamed. So that the church doesn't become the hypocrite that we've been talking about. It has to be dealt with. We can't let someone defraud Christ's name in our midst and let it go unaddressed because we will too be defrauding his name by housing such an individual. So when counsel is not heeded, what should be done? What's the next step? Verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what does this mean? Paul is asking them to judge so that he doesn't have to. He's asking 
the Corinthian leadership to gather themselves together in, in solemnness and act on behalf of Jesus Christ and address it from a spiritual perspective. He's saying, guys, I shouldn't even have to be talking about this. I shouldn't even have to judge on your behalf. The name of Jesus Christ is at stake. So what you need to do is you need to gather your leadership together and with brokenness and grieving, in gentleness and mercy, deliver this person over to Satan. Now, whoa, that's, that's harsh language, isn't it? I mean, that sounds terrible. And that's because it is terrible. Spiritually speaking, he must be given over to Satan. I mean, because listen, if he wanted to sin, he can't do that in the camp of Christ. If a person wants to live in sin, in egregious sin, openly, you can't get away with that in the camp of Christ. And so if, if you're going to do that, you've got to go to the camp of Satan. There's only one other place to go, and that's the world. And when you're playing his game and you're in his camp, you play by his rules, and it doesn't go well. There are consequences for the actions. So spiritually speaking, he must be given over to Satan so that he might discover that his sin will ultimately be his harm. See, there would be no spiritual insulation for this guy anymore. There would be no spiritual covering for him. We're leaving him to the exposure of the world. He must go. Now, you know, in this place, there's a lot of safety, right? Like, what a wonderful place to be when you know that when you mess up, people still forgive you and accept you. What a wonderful place to be when people can hold you accountable to live the way that you, that you desire to live, and that's to follow Christ. What a wonderful place to be when you know that you can sing with your brothers and sisters and rejoice and celebrate, and we can see the lives of people change. We can see, man, the Hart family's here today, right? To see Ashley's life changed. To see that, to witness that, to watch what God is doing in the hamlets, and, and to rejoice together, to be a family. How wonderful is that? There is something very insulating about that, protective about that, the way that you can grow in like a laboratory, isn't it? It's like a greenhouse for spiritual growth. There's a place of safety. There's a place of nurturing. There's fathers and mothers spiritually investing in your life. What a wonderful place to be. But when you choose sin, you get outside of that. That covering is no longer there. That insulation is gone. And you are exposed to the elements of this world. And so what Paul is saying is that that's what this guy needs in his life. He needs that exposure to Satan. So that he could see, for once, see that his sin is not good for him. That it's only going to result in hurt and harm for him. So here's the next thing we need to understand. Key point. Church discipline. Church discipline is God's mechanism for retrieving his unrepentant children. See, the, the goal isn't kicking someone out. That's not the end goal. That's not the end of the story. As far as God is concerned, okay, he's awaiting the climax of the story where that prodigal son finds himself wallowing with the swine of the world. 
Where that prodigal son who's squandered and wasted all the good gifts that his father has given him, where he discovers in that moment what he has done so that he would return back to the father and make things right. See, as far as the leadership in this church is concerned and as far as you should be concerned, when someone is dismissed from the body of Christ, we're only just awaiting their repentance. We're only just hopeful. We're just only praying, God, 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 have your way with this person. We love them. We're mourning for them. We're grieving for them. Please return them to us with safety. God, please be gracious towards them despite the fact that they're choosing Satan's way. Be gracious towards them. Show them a more perfect way. Bring them back to us with safety that we might restore them to fellowship. See, church discipline exposes the unrepentant to the consequences of their own sin and promotes rediscovering the goodness of God. Now, what are the pastor's responsibility here? What about us? What about MBT? How do we deal with these situations? Well, first of all, I want to report to you that in the 15 years that we've been at church and in the 17 years that we've been at work in this ministry, we've only had to do this about five or six times in the entirety of our history. Like this entire chapter is here for our protection. But as far as our church is concerned, this, is, this happens very infrequently, okay? Every three years, someone loses their mind, right? And if they don't just leave on their own, then we have to sit them down and ask them to not come back. It's terrible. I can tell you, I've been in these meetings. It is terrible. So when, the church, when church discipline is considered... I want you to know that your pastors, they move with, with as much grace as possible. And the, the pastors are very careful to make sure that we've done everything we possibly can to convey our love and to call them to righteousness. Like, like I can tell you that Pastor Sam, when we get to the doorstep of this kind of thing, I mean, I mean it's, 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 it's meeting after meeting have we done everything that we can do. I mean, emergency meetings and, uh, you know, late night meetings and phone calls and, and where are things at with this person and, and what has been said and, and what kind of counseling have they had and is there any way, is there any way and we, we plead and we plead and we plead and we fall all over ourselves because we desire above all that this person be right before the Lord. And it's terrible. I mean, Sam will call the pastors to pray and to fast. That God would move, that his spirit would move, that at the ninth hour something would change, that they would recognize just how depraved their behavior is. They would see it for what it is and they would repent completely. I mean, we'll fast and pray for days leading up to these decisions. Listen to me. It sounds terrible because it is terrible. It's so terrible. No pastor ever wants to have to do this. You understand? It's grievous. And so when we dismiss someone from our church, um, I want to report to you that it's only because we've, we've pulled out every stop and this person has decided with complete clarity and lack of conviction that they want to continue to sin. 
And ultimately, the decision to discipline a church member is a decision that that person makes. They've invited it. And it's done with the intention that they would repent, but also that it would protect the church. The second thing is that it would protect the church. Why must it be done? Verse 6. He says to them, your glorying is not good. This phrase implies that the church in Corinth, they were a proud people, that they saw themselves with such great favor that they could no longer even see their blemishes. Your glorying is not good. There was a serious danger in their inability to self-examine. You ever know people like this? Maybe you're one of these people. You have a hard time seeing your own faults. And the church had become this way. They had a hard time seeing their own, they couldn't self-examine, they couldn't see their own sin. Their unaddressed sin had the ability to corrupt the whole entirety of the church. Their failure to address this had the ability to corrupt what God was doing. Know ye not, listen to this, Paul's about to paint a picture here um, of what happens, what, 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 is, what happens when a sin is allowed to be fostered in the midst of God's people. And he uses this picture of leaven and the, bake, breaking, uh, the baking of bread to picture for us the danger of unaddressed sin. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? So throughout the whole Bible, okay, for the, those of you who are unfamiliar with this, you haven't maybe read much of the Old Testament, throughout the whole Bible, leaven is used to picture evil. Okay, so you jot that down. That's a Bible study tool that you can use because leaven comes up a lot. Okay, especially in the Pentateuch and the laws. Right? There's, there's very specific things that the nation of Israel is supposed to do in terms of addressing, addressing leaven. Now, you understand that leaven is the part of, of bread baking. You know, I, I didn't even think about this. I should have just invited the Gelvins to come up here and just talk about this for like 30 minutes. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. But, it, but it's the, the, the culture that's invited into the baking process that causes the bread to rise. Okay, so it has a reaction like it causes a reaction, a chemical reaction that causes your bread to be fluffy, right? right? And people, people love leavened bread, right? They love it. Sinners, loving it. <laughs> sourdough bread is my favorite. Anybody else, you with me? Love me some sourdough bread. Can't eat it, can't eat it. If I can't eat just one piece, it's impossible. So I just don't eat it. Right? So know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. Okay, this idea of purging out leaven, it reminds us of how the nation of Israel was asked to purge out, to clean their homes of all leaven in anticipation of the Passover feast. Okay, leaven being a picture of their old lives in Egypt. Now, why did they have to do that? You guys know what the Passover is, right? Okay, symbolically, the Passover is a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It symbolizes the new man. So purge out the leaven so that you can properly worship during the Passover. Listen to what it says. As ye, ye, you, are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. What does this mean? You, you as a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been purged of your sin. You understand? God took care of the leaven in your life. He dealt with it once and for all. Right? 
you are unleavened. Referring to the idea that your standing in forgiveness before Christ is pure and clean and right. Verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, this is referring to the feast of unleavened bread that came after the Passover. After the Passover, there's a celebration of unleavened bread. So listen, here's the picture for us. The sacrifice was made, wasn't it? The sacrifice was made for us. The Passover in our lives, we are on this side of the Passover. Believers in Jesus Christ, New Testament believers, cleaned of their sins, we are on this side of the Passover sacrifice. And on this side of the sacrifice, our home should only be filled with the unleavened bread of righteousness. Christ came and he sacrificed so that we might be clean before him without any leaven. And so here's the next thing that we need to understand. This is the, the point that Paul's trying to make for us. Church discipline is God's mechanism for protecting the church from a culture of sin. So he does, the, the idea of church discipline is not only just for that person that they would be made right, but so that the church would be made right and protect us from a culture of sin. Man, think about this for a second. If this guy is left in the church, can you imagine for a second him bringing his stepmom to church? Saving her a seat in the pew? I mean, t I mean, and people are watching this man sin. They know about it. They know what's going on. They see it for what it is. Now, if you see that going on in your church, and even the Gentiles think it's vile and disgusting, what kind of sin can you justify now? Well, I guess my sins aren't so bad. You know, I guess, I mean, if that ain't bad, I guess that I can do whatever I want to do as long as I don't top that. You know what I mean? This is what can happen in a church that permits sin. It creates a culture of sin, and we've got to protect the church against that. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? We, we are called as leaders. We are responsible for judging ourselves, for dealing with these things in-house. Okay, that goes for the church, but that also goes for your home and your life. Deal with what's on your front door step, right? Deal with that stuff. What is it in your life that needs to be dealt with? Judge yourself. Deal with your own stuff so that others don't have to deal with it and so that this never even has to be a problem. So when must it be done? Okay, that's the next question. When? When do we do this? Right? Because, man, I said a cuss word in traffic yesterday, and I do that a lot. That's what you're thinking to yourself, right? I mean, I got some road rage. <laughs> right? You know, or, you know, I, I was at the gym, and I looked too long at that girl, and oh my gosh, are they going to put me on church discipline? <laughs> Listen, I know y'all are jacked, okay? I know that there are sin in your, sins in your life that you've got to deal with before the Lord. But listen to me. There are specific things that are particularly egregious and they should never be named once among Christians. Okay? 
And the list here is, is a list of, of things that have come to characterize individuals. Okay, we're talking about in terms of character. Not the fact that you messed up that one time early in discipleship where you called your old boyfriend, right? And you made, you made that mistake and you messed up, but you repented of it and you made it right before the Lord. Nah, see? Mm, good. We love you. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the indulgence of sin here. Now, now let's look here at verse 9. Okay? There's, there's, there's an admonition that, that Paul's given in times past about how they're supposed to deal with the lost world. Okay? I wrote unto, uh, unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet all to get, not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous uh, or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Now listen to me. There's a way in which we ought to approach the lost world. We can't hold them to the same standard that we hold Christians to. Okay, now we gotta be careful, balanced in our relationship with lost people. Because we know that lost people are all these things. They're covetous, they're fornicators, and they struggle with these things. Our old, our old friends, man, I'm gonna hurt something. Okay, our old friends act this way, they behave a certain way. Now listen to me. We are called to witness to those people. We are called to be a light in the dark place. Okay, and so you have to have relationships with lost people in order to win them to Christ. You gotta do it. It's part of what we're called to be. But you aren't supposed to have intimate relationships with people like that. These aren't supposed to be your besties, okay? These aren't supposed to be the, the people that you're closest to in the world. Why? Because it's not right for a Christian to, to hang out with fornicators and covetous people and idolaters and wicked people as, as though you and them are the same. You're not the same. You're different. You're set apart. You're to go to them. You're to win them. But you, but you can't do that if you're living life on their terms, you understand? You can't do that. There has to be a distinction between you and the lost. Right? They have to see that what you have is better. And if you're out there just doing what they're doing, well, what you have is not better, or you wouldn't be out here doing what they're doing. Does that make sense? You can't live that way. That's not what God wants. So we have to, have to understand, you know, we can't hold the lost world to the same standards we hold believers to. We have to have a perspective on them that's right. We evangelize them, we win them. We don't, be, we don't go back to them. We don't live that way. But as it concerns Christian, the, Christians, the Bible is specific in what sin, uh, what qualifies as sin and what qualifies for church discipline. There are certain sins, according to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, that should never be named among Christians. Now let's read verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. Okay, so now I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you a new thing. Okay? If any man that is called a brother be a, and now here's this list. Okay, these are sins that characterize people in a way that, that qualifies for church discipline. Okay, what's the first one on the list there? Fornicators. Okay, like this dude in the church. All right, messed up. Fornicators. But it's any kind of fornication, any kind of sexual sin that's allowed to happen to the point where, where like people, like it's characterizing who you are. You're indulging this thing. So this is a person that's characterized by repeated sexual sin. That's a fornicator. Okay, who else, is, who else is liable to get kicked out of the church? Well, covetous. Well, dang, man, that's tough. Yeah, it is tough. This is a person that's char uh, characterized by repeatedly desiring things that don't belong to them, that live a lifestyle of greed to the point where they're willing to take what they, they want. That. That's a covetous person. That person is susceptible 
According, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that person's susceptible to church discipline. Who else? An idolater. Okay? An idolater. This is a, this is a person who is choosing to worship other gods. Okay? Now, in Corinthian society, that would have been someone who chose to go back to those Greek temples and worship there, despite the fact that Christ had set them free. You don't get to add Christ to your list of gods. He's not one among many. Okay? He's, the, he's the one that puts the others down. Right? You only get one God. So you don't get to live the lifestyle characterized by idolatry. What else? A railer. This is a person who's characterized by anger and d- divisive behavior. People that are in the church that are constantly call- causing division. Always angry. Always gossiping. Always backbiting. That kind of divisive behavior can constitute church discipline. A drunkard, a person who is characterized by their inebriation. They don't want to stop smoking weed. I don't want to stop smoking weed. I'm going to come to church. I, want, I, I still like the fellowship. I want to be at church. Okay, well, you can't come to church and just choose to smoke weed. You can't just come to church and choose to get drunk at night. You don't get to live that way. God's calling you to something greater than that. And if that begins to characterize who you are, and it's an indulgence that you content, you refuse to give it up. Okay, those two things are not compatible. Your Christianity and your choice to do whatever you want to do, those things are no longer compatible. Extortioner. This is a person characterized by taking what doesn't belong to them. This is a straight-up thief. I mean, you can imagine. Someone around here thieving all the time. How that might go. Set your iPad down for one second to go to the restroom. Someone's jacking your stuff. I mean, that's messed up, but I guess that happens in churches. I don't know, right? It's a, it's a pretty exhaustive list here of the types of individuals that Paul says we have to deal with. So, listen, absent repentance, all these things qualify as reasons one might be put on church discipline. And the goal, listen to me, the goal, again, is that it would produce godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. God wants to use this, this idea of church discipline, this dismissal from the body of Christ as a season of conviction, a season of trial, a season of refining that would draw that person back into fellowship with us. So, How must it be done? That's the next question, okay? We're covering ground here. We're gonna get through it, all right? I want us to have a full picture. How must it be done? How how do we as a church conduct ourselves towards people who are on church discipline? So imagine for a second, someone gets put on church discipline. Okay, there are ways in which, like, what does that mean? I mean, we don't just kick them to the curb and it's like, what, now what? Now what? That was my friend. That was, that was my family member. I love them. How should I approach them? How should I think about them? Okay, listen. The first thing you need to understand is that a person who's on church discipline, we don't get to engage them at the frequency we did before. Okay? So look at verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother... Okay, now listen, what is this saying? You're not supposed to go kick it the way that you kicked it before. 
All right? you, can't, you can't just go over to Sally's house or Joe's house and hang out the way you were with the frequency you were hanging out before. You are supposed to step back. Okay, now, now, I don't think that we're supposed to cut ourselves off. It never says that. It doesn't mean that we can't ever engage them. Why? You know, we, we want to provide people with a lifeline, you understand? They should, they should still have your number and you should have theirs. You should text them and tell them how much you love them. You should occasionally take them out to coffee and see where they're at. Okay, listen to me. We're supposed to love people. And if we don't provide people with a lifeline to coming back to the church, if we just sever them and excommunicate them, like, like the Catholic Church in like the 6th century, excommunicated, <laughs> anathema, you know? If we do that to people, there's no lifeline for them to come back, and the goal is always restoration. Does that make sense? But at the same exact time, there has to be a difference in the frequency in which we spend with them, the time in which we can't be the same. Because if you do that, you're acting like things, things are the same. And they'll think that things are just the same. And then there'll be absolutely no sting. It's supposed to sting. Sounds terrible. It's because it is terrible. It goes a little further. Two, what else should we do? How else should we behave ourselves? Don't engage them at the level of intimacy that you did before. Your relationship can't, the fellowship can't be like this anymore. You can't fellowship with someone who doesn't even agree with the terms of Scripture. How are you supposed to fellow? This is the basis for fellowship. You can't engage someone intimately who's like, man, you know what? Jesus sucks because he won't let me sleep with my girlfriend. Your church sucks. You guys don't, won't let me smoke all the weed I want and then come to church. Okay, listen to me. <laughs> you lose, there's something that gets lost when someone decides that they don't believe what you believe. And they, don't, they believe that your God is so small that, he's not even, that he doesn't even care that they just do whatever they want to do. That's a hard person to fellowship with. So you can't engage them at the level of intimacy that you did before. And then three, they're not invited to attend this church the way that they did before. Verse 12 says, For what, what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? I mean, like, get to work. You, got, you guys have to judge yourselves. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In other words, put them out of the church. They're behaving wickedly. Put them out of the church. Keep your lifelines. Keep, keep loving them. Keep letting them know that you care for them, that you want what's right for them, that you want them to be, you want them to be a part. You long for them to be a part. But family is family. And if they don't want to behave like family, like, listen to me. When I was young, this goes for families too. My brother wanted to do whatever he wanted to do in my mom's house. Didn't matter if he got arrested. Didn't matter if he wanted, he wanted to come home and have a bed at night, but do whatever he wanted to do. Stay out as late as he wanted to stay out. Drink what he wanted to drink. Smoke what he wanted to smoke. And then just come home and act like everything was hunky-dory. My mom wasn't having it. There were rules for the house. She put him out. Now, did he like that? No. Was he angry about it? Yeah. Did he say a bunch of hurtful and mean things? Yeah. But my mom had to protect the home. She had to do what was right for everyone. Right? He didn't get to have, you know, my brother, 
Um, y'all are sneaky, and some of you have past lives. You know about what I'm about to talk about. But he punched a hole behind a poster, and it had a rope. It had a rope with liquor bottles. I mean, he was 13. This is real clever. Okay, liquor bottles tied to the string down into the wall like this. Okay, he taped the end of the rope, put the poster back. Good, it's good. He was so good at stashing weed, y'all. I mean. Right? I was just, you could just, you just find weed like it was an Easter egg hunt. But by the time he was 16 or 17 and, and he wanted to live the way he wanted to live, it was like, what are we going to do? By the time he was 18, my mom was like, you got to go. Like, I, you can't do that here. Right? Now, we got to have that perspective. My mom loved, loved my brother. Love had nothing to do with it. It was the only way that he could learn the lesson that he needed to learn. Now, what have we learned? What have we learned today? Well, first of all, church discipline sucks. We don't ever want to have to do it. Okay, well, that's one thing. But we should also learn this. We should each deal with our own sin so other people don't have to. Right? That's a lifestyle. That's having the perspective that we talked about earlier. Two, unrepentant sin is dangerous. It's dangerous to you and it's dangerous to the church family. Unrepentant sin is dangerous. Three, your pastors love you and they desire only good for you. You need to know that. And when you see, okay, listen, it'll be rare, but when you see someone leave the church of their own volition or get put out of the church, if you love that person, a lot of times you're, gonna, you're going to doubt. You're going to doubt the decisions of your pastors. If you ever have to, if you're ever in that place, come talk to us. See, because we're trying to protect you. And so we don't, we're not going to stand up in front of everybody we're not, and just say, hey, okay, let's, let me explain to you how Joe stepped in it. We don't do that. But if you've got questions, come talk to us because the last thing that we need is for you to be upset with us about something that you don't even know anything about. We love you. We love you. This is not our profession. This is our passion. We would do anything for you. We love you, and we desire for you to be right before the Lord. And the last thing is this. God is faithful to use any means necessary to recover his children from sin. He's willing to do anything. You've seen him do it. People that just live in sin and the consequences just come and come. Can they dig any deeper? Can they dig a deeper hole? I mean, haven't they gone far enough? They just keep digging and God is just faithful in his mercy to bring them to the end of themselves. Think about Jonah, right? Again and again. I mean, God just whooping his rear end. You know what I mean? Over and over and over again. Why? Because he loved him and he wanted to share the same heartbeat with Jonah. Come alongside me. Love what I love. He's faithful. He's faithful to chastise his own children. Listen, Romans 6, 1 says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid that we would just stay sinning because we know grace is gonna abound and cover it anyway. God already forgave me, got my ticket punched. I'm good. Here I come, heaven. It's only gravy. Let me see if I can come up with more. 
No, I got nothing else. Okay? Should we sin that grace would abound? Just dragging God's name through the mud? That grace would abound? Just living depraved, doing whatever we want to do. I mean, we got saved. We're good, right? I'm clean before the Lord. I'm just going to do what I want to do. God forbid. How shall we then, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Don't mock the grace of God with the choice to commit sin. I want to invite Harrison up um, to, to lead us in worship, okay? And as we enter into worship, there's going to be counselors up here. And so here's the invitation. Listen to me, listen to me. Don't pack up, just listen to me, listen to me. If you've got a sin that's not been dealt with, there will never be another sermon more clear than the one that I've preached today on this topic, on this, you know, we'll talk, we talk about sin, we talk about dealing with sin, but listen to me. There will never be a, a sermon any more clear on this topic than what I'm preaching right now. If you have a hard heart, if you, if you are holding on to sins that you hide in, this, in secret in the darkness of your bedroom, if you are doing things that are unbecoming of a Christian, if you have relationships that you've messed up and you need to make them right, do not let, do not let this moment pass. Come deal with your sin. Come talk with a counselor. Confess it. Deal with it. Be vulnerable. Be right before the Lord. Because every time we choose to indulge even the smallest of sins, maybe it's not something on this list, even the smallest of sins, we get closer to the stuff on that list. We get one step closer to becoming the fornicator. We get one step closer to being the idolater. Don't be that person. Deal with your sin. Make it right before the Lord. And let's have the fellowship that we have to have. We're trying to win the world to Christ. We can't let our pet sins get in the way of that. We got too much to do. One life to live. Let's make things right before the Lord today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, This passage, again, so hard, so difficult, but yet, Lord, you're gracious with us, and and you are always calling us back to restoration. Lord, preserve us from a lifestyle of wickedness. Lord, show us the error of our ways. Show us the small ways in which we're inviting sin into our life. Lord, we love you. We need you. Teach us and draw us as a good shepherd. We hear your voice, Lord. Draw us to yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.com. Dot L-I-V-E.